Now, there's really a paradox at the heart of most real relationships. And this is true when we think about loving God or just loving other people that have been placed in our lives. But in most relationships, there is some kind of spark that begins them. There's some kind of connection that kicks things off and gets things started. But the paradox is that that relationship cannot continue on that spark alone. There comes some time when love has to be sustained as a choice. And that's true when we think about our relationships maybe with husbands or wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, or just our relationship with other friends. In a romantic relationship, maybe we meet someone and there's just that chemistry that you feel. There's that spark. And you wonder, hmm, could this be something here? If it's a friendship, maybe you meet someone and you just connect over shared interests or shared values, shared worldview. You meet someone and you just click. You get along. But very often, in any kind of deep relationship, there's some kind of a spark that kicks things off. And the people learn to love each other out of that. But the real paradox is that that spark alone is not enough to carry a relationship. If we're counting on the warm feelings, the feeling, fuzzy feeling of love to carry us through, there will come some point when that feeling just isn't there. And if you've been in a, a deep relationship with a spouse or with a friend, you've probably had one of those moments, right? A time when you just did not feel like you loved your spouse or your partner. A time when you did not feel, at least in the, the warm, fuzzy way, that you loved your friend, your best friend. And if that spark is what you're counting on to carry you through, then relationships fizzle out. Friends drift, drift away. Relationships can break up. Really, the only way that those relationships survive is when the people who are involved in them make a choice to continue to love. When the feelings are gone, what carries those relationships is when the people involved in them say, you know what? I am committed to this. I'm here for the long haul. I'm choosing to put my time, my commitment, my energy into this relationship. And then, of course, hopefully over time, the, the feelings return, the feelings of love return. But until they do, that choice to love is really what carries the relationship through. I'd like to share with you a few words this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that I think really get at this paradox. They're verses that are often read when we think about what it means to love God, but I think they really display that paradox between love as a feeling and love as a choice. We'll be reading Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along in your own Bible, or the words will be here on the screen. But Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you're about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I'm commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply 
greatly in a land that is flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. And then verses 4 and 5 here, this is really the key that we'll focus on. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. Now, this gets at that paradox. Love is a feeling versus love is a choice. I think the Israelite people almost surely had some days when they, they did feel love for the Lord. They had that feeling. But almost surely, there were some days when at least some of the Israelite people did not feel in an emotional way like they did love the Lord. And so if you are reading this verse as a, a command to love as a feeling, it just seems a little silly, doesn't it? To be commanded to feel love. It's like being commanded to feel happy or something. You can't make yourself feel happy. You feel happy or you don't. Our feelings aren't really conscious choices. But I think what this verse is speaking to is the commandment to love as a choice. It's not speaking of the feeling of loving the Lord, but the choice to love the Lord. This is a commandment to the Israelites to not walk away from this relationship with God. Regardless of how the people feel, they're being told, invest in this relationship with God. Choose to love God. Choose this relationship with the Lord. And we see that aspect of choice right before verse 5 in verse 4. Verse 4 is a, it's a very interesting verse. In Hebrew, the language is very difficult and confusing. So different translations render it different ways. But what my translation said was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Now, it seems to me that the best way to understand what the Hebrew is trying to say is that this is a declaration that Yahweh, the Hebrew God, is the only one who is supposed to be worshipped in Israel. Now, it's interestingly, it's not a denial that there are no other gods. It's just saying there are no other Israelite gods. The way we do things here in Israel is that we only worship the Lord. Now, that's a bit surprising, but I think Deuteronomy is speaking to this long-running trend that had been present in Israelite society for a long, long time, where the people felt this continuous desire to worship other gods alongside the Lord. They were often looking for other gods and goddesses to worship. One very popular one was the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, or she had a Palestinian manifestation called Asherah. And there was this persistent desire by the Hebrew people to worship Asherah alongside the Lord. Archaeologists see this when they go and dig up villages, Israelite villages. They see evidence of the worship of Asherah. We see it in the book of Kings and Chronicles in the Bible, where over and over Kings and Chronicles speaks about these Asherah poles that had been set up so that people could worship Asherah alongside the Lord. And Kings and Chronicles says that some of the Israelite rulers let that continue, and some tried to stomp it out. But that desire was always there. There's a very, very memorable passage in the book of Jeremiah when this desire to worship 
Asherah, this false goddess, alongside the Lord, it continued even into the time of the exile when the Israelite people had been scattered and dispersed from their lands. And the prophet Jeremiah is pleading with some of them to be faithful to the Lord, worship only the Lord. And the people respond to Jeremiah in chapter 44 by saying, we will not listen to this message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We're not going to listen to your desire, your proclamation that we should worship only God. The people say, we will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven. That's an, an epithet for Asherah. So we will burn incense to Asherah. We will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food. We were well off. We suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven, ever since we stopped pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and we have been perishing by sword and famine. Now, this sounds like exactly the kind of thing that you hear in a church all the time, right? We're not going to do it this newfangled way. We're going to do it the way we always did it. Jeremiah, don't come in here with your newfangled ideas about worshiping only the Lord. We have always worshiped Asherah. Things were good when we worshiped Asherah. We're going to keep worshiping Asherah. So it's really in opposition to that, that Deuteronomy 6 says, hey, I know you may want to do some of these other things. I know you may feel this desire to worship other gods. But no, that is not how we do things here in Israel. We have one God here in Israel, and that God is the Lord. When I think about how I hope that we can love God at Forest Hills. It's really this verse from Deuteronomy that jumps into my heart. Deuteronomy 6, for the Israelites, is, it's almost like a, a tacit acknowledgement, really. Deuteronomy saying, yes, I know that there are those other forces that pull at your life. I know there are those places of emotional power that feel real. They feel strong. They feel compelling. Maybe there are times when they feel like they are more important than the Lord. But Deuteronomy says, don't choose that. Choose differently. That's my hope for us at Forest Hills. This next year in 2020, there will be forces in your life that will pull at you. Some may come from your own life, your own heart. Some may come from society or the wider world. But there will be forces that will want your attention. They'll want your worship in a sense, if not explicitly, at least indirectly. Those forces will feel powerful. At times, they may feel more important than the Lord. They'll feel seductive. But my hope is that we will really recognize the truth of this scripture, that loving God means choosing to invest our whole selves into our relationship with God. Loving God means choosing to invest all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength into our relationship with God. Loving God means choosing to put that relationship first, even when it seems like there may be other things that are more important, even when it seems like other things might be more powerful. We choose and say, no, 
I choose to put my trust in God. That's my dream for us as a people, that we will really choose to live with full devotion to this God who is worthy of all of our devotion in 2020. So I'm, heard, I'm sure that you guys have heard the phrase, jack of all trades and master of none. So if you're thinking to yourselves, I'm really tired of hearing the Ashley girl sing, well, now I can try to win your affection by speaking a little bit to you. Um, so yeah, Andrew gave me this opportunity. Sorry, guys, whatever happens, happens. Um, but yeah, so wow, what about that video? Like, I think that the young people of our church are really getting it. Um, you think, I think that those aren't just answers that mean nothing to the ones who spoke them. Um, I think that they have grown up seeing people that they look up to love others really well. Uh, they've been taught to understand ways of love, expressions of love, and how all different types of people are to be loved. So we just heard what it really means to love God with all of ourselves, everything that we are. So the question now is, how do we really love people? I think of my buddy Jackson on the video seeing love as giving people lots and lots of hugs. Yes, I'm right there with you, Jackson. I, my favorite form of greeting or affection for anyone is to hug them and just show them that I care. Or how about Breed and Keaton? Uh, they see love as asking people how they need help or going to people to worship with them if they can't come and meet with us. And I think they're, they're really on to something for us as believers. I think we can learn a lot from their answers. Our children and youth are already seeing this important truth, that love is an action. It's going and doing. It's being the church and not just going to a church. It's incredible, really. Like What these answers have taught me is that from our youngest children to our oldest youth, each of them understands an important truth. To love others, we must reach out to them instead of always expecting them to come to us. So isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, is that our default, or are we just more comfortable with the idea that people will come to us if they really need help? You know, Jesus actually had quite a bit to say about love. Um, one of the places that Jesus speaks really clearly about love is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. So if we look at the beginning of this sermon that Jesus is preaching up to this point, Jesus has kind of begun this pattern. Um, and what he's doing is he's telling people what they've heard, and then he's saying, but I say to you. So before we get to the passage that we're about to read, Jesus has already done this about five times. Basically what he's doing he, is he's beginning each thought with, you have heard this. Either you've heard it from the law, you've heard it from your culture around you, um, but some of what they've heard is good um, in these things. But each time Jesus decides to raise the stakes. So he's saying, with each of his but I say to you statements, he's raising the bar. So with this in mind, let's check out how Jesus raises the love bar as we look at Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You can read this either in your own Bible or we'll also have it on the screen for you. So Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43, says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he cares, he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
do not even the tax collectors do this? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Some translations say, do not even the pagans do the same? So here they're referring to non-believers. Don't they even do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I wish I really had time to dig into all of the richness that this passage has, but I think there are some key elements in just a few minutes that we can really see how Jesus expects us to love people in this. So first of all, we need to understand that we are all people. We all need love. We all mess up. We've all sinned. And we all just really want authentic care in our lives. This means that our neighbor is just like us. They may not look like us, they may not talk like us, they may not live like us, but they're people just like you and me. Our children and youth see this. Did you hear the mentioning of loving our refugees or serving the homeless or loving the people who are different from us? They get it. But check this out. Jesus says in verse 43, hey, I know what you've heard. You've heard you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Jesus is acknowledging that the people he's speaking to understand that loving their neighbor is expected. The disciples understand this. Probably a lot of the crowds that were overhearing this understand it. He's like, they got that. But the culture around them has said, but you can hate your enemy because they probably hate you. So here's where Jesus says, well, hold the phone. Like, slow your roll, fam. Okay? Listen up because I'm raising the stakes. And here's what Jesus says. In verse 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is where all the disciples and the crowds that are overhearing said the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek equivalent of y'all. He's tripping. Like, what is Jesus talking about? He's crazy. Like, I'm supposed to love her? I'm supposed to love him? And he's really clear. Jesus says, He goes on to explain in verse 45 that God the Father sends both rain and sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. Then Jesus tosses out some questions in the next two verses. He says, what kind of reward do you get from loving only those who love you? Or how are you living any differently than those who don't believe in God if all you do is greet those that you care about? Jesus is telling his disciples, you got to be different. You have to serve those who put you down. You have to love those who would choose to step on you. You have to wash the feet of those who would choose to betray you. Didn't Jesus? Didn't he wash the feet of Judas hours before he would betray him? Or the feet of Peter, soon after which would deny that he even knew Jesus? But Jesus ends this thought in verse 48 by showing us that our standard is God the Father. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The idea of this word perfect means to be complete or reaching full maturity without lacking anything. So Jesus knows that we're imperfect. He gets it. And he knows that sin has clouded our view. But he makes perfection our standard so that no one can love only at certain times and consider themselves justified in that. So what does this mean for us? How do we really love people? What we have to understand is that love is an action. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we have no excuse for withholding love from any human that he died to save. So how do we do this? 
Well, in my life group, uh, for the past couple of months, um, we've been challenging each other to choose our one. Um, so basically what that means is we've each named a person that we'll choose to pray for, at least one person that we'll choose to pray for, both in the group each week and individually. Um, and then we'll find ways to love and serve those people intentionally. So right now I want us to together stop and consider that question in each of our own lives. Who's your one? It can certainly be more than one, but sometimes we need to start small. Um, so we'll do that. And as this next year starts, we can all identify at least one person that we can pray for and try to find ways to love more intentionally, even when it may be hard to love them. Maybe you already know who that person is, um, and you can begin praying to ask God how to love that person more intentionally.